you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Church. We are in a series in the Gospel of John. You probably figured that out from that video. Uh, we've been having fun. We finally got into chapter 9 this last Sunday, and wouldn't you know it, we're still there today. So uh, if you've got a Bible, if you want to go to John chapter 9, verse 1, we'll be there in just a moment. Um, but before we get there, I want to just kind of lay some groundwork. Last week, if you were here with us, uh, we talked about a theology of suffering. What we mean by that is an understanding of God that informs our, our life experience of pain, disappointment, and, and, and suffering. We want, to have a, we want to have an understanding of suffering that's filtered through a lens of God. Come on, not a, 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 an understanding of God that's filtered through a lens of suffering. So we, we walked through that last week. We, we looked at this and we, we sort of tried to, to, to wrap our arms around this. And now this week, I want us to, to sort of let that, that, that theology that we have, that understanding, that intellectual sort of layer, sort of press down into, can I say it this way, real life? <laughs> what does this look like fleshed out? How does this play out in real life? What do we do when the reality of life, come on, is, 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 is thrust into our understanding of a biblically shaped view of God? How do we, how do we handle this? How do we wrestle through this? Come on, not the fairy tale life that we pretend like we have online, but the real life that we live day in and day out. Not the, not the God of our intellectual making, but the, the biblical God of the Bible. Not the one that we intellectually like or we emotionally like or we philosophically create in our own image, but the real, actual, tangible, real, come on, God of the Bible. This morning, I want to I dive into John chapter 9, but before we do that, I want to give us a little bit of framework in the scripture, so if you'd go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word, I'm going to make us do something that I love to do, and you don't love it when I do, but you do it because you love me. <laughs> I want us to read the Bible together. We're going to read the Bible together. So you, you can go in your Bibles to John chapter 9, verse 1. Just go there. It's fine. Hang out there. I'm going to put verses up on the screen. If you're at home, I'm going to ask you to read this as well with us. And if you're at home, I need you to read it really loud so we can hear you here. <laughs> Challenge accepted? Okay. Uh, we're going to read some Bible verses together. Uh, we're just going to kind of go through these and read them loud as we can like we really believe them. Amen? Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says... So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 tells us though, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Matthew eleven fifteen. this is the most common thing Jesus says in all of scripture. Here's what he says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then this, I love this. Luke chapter 8 verse 18 
Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. All right, you got your Bibles out. John chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to read a few more verses, just a few more than last week. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Here we go. You don't have to read this with me. I will, I will spare you the awkward pain of all of us trying to read together. Just so you know, just by way of, of, of just sharing, I used to make us do that when I was a youth pastor when we didn't have Bible on screens. And when I had different versions of the Bible, it was super awkward. I loved it. It was amazing. <laughs> it's also really fun to watch the kid just kind of go like watermelon, watermelon, and pretend like he was reading when he wasn't. All right, let's read this together. Uh, John chapter 9, verse 1 through 9, it says, And as he passed by, who is he? Jesus. Jesus. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. That is the most awkward use of the word anointed ever. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Everybody say sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others, No, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I absolutely love this, I am the man. <laughs> Probably not how he said it, but that's how I say it. Let's go ahead and pray together and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you. Come on for your word. We thank you that your word is alive. God, that it's not just, it's not idle, it's not dead, it's not passive, it's not, it's not in the past and we have, to, we have to travel back to go get it, but it's here and it's now and it's with us. God, I thank you that it is active and moving and shifting and changing. God, it does not change, and yet it changes us, and so we see its power to transform. And so we come to your word this morning expecting, God, for us to be altered by it. Lord, let it be both the, the, the hammer and the flame that softens our hearts and reshapes our hearts. Let it transform the way we think and the way we feel and the way we process. Let it change us on the deepest level possible. Let us leave this place as doers of your word, not just hearers. Don't let us just hear and think that that's, that's all that is required, God, but, but allow your word to travel deep within us, not just modify our behavior, but let it shift even what we believe to be true. 
Let it change us evermore into the image of you, Jesus, that as we leave this place, we might leave, God, as sons of God, bringing forth the fragrant aroma of your kingdom everywhere we go, bringing forth the fulfillment of all that you have planned and purposed in the earth. In Jesus' name, everybody said I'm going to high-five a few people or elbow bump or greet them, however you feel so led, and grab a seat. Jesus really likes to heal blind people in the Bible. It's it's the most common miracle that he does, and he does it different all the time. And this one might be, in my opinion, if I was going to rate them, might be the most awkward of all of the ways that Jesus heals this man. But this morning, what I want to try to do is I want to try, if I can, uh, to, to speak to you under the title, The Perspective of Blindness. My, my, my hope, and I know this might sound awkward, is to put the camera into the view of the blind guy. I know that doesn't make sense. I want us to try to see this from the perspective of this blind beggar, whose name we don't even know. We know very little, really, about him. We learn about his, his, his attitude, and, and, and I really like him. I'm just letting you know, as we move through this passage, he's slowly becoming one of my favorite people in the Bible, We know very little about him, but I think we miss a lot of the power and the and the the truth in this in this passage, in this account, because we know its outcome. We gotta know what's gonna happen. So we, we miss it. And so what I, what I want to try to do is, is, is put the camera, if we're making a movie, I want to I put the camera right in the lap of this, of this blind beggar and help us sort of see what's really happening as we, as we look at this. And so, so let's, let's review quickly here. Let's just see what has really taken place. First, he is utterly disrespected by the disciples. Don't miss that. They, they speak about him in the third person. He's not even worth acknowledging. They have no conversation with him. They don't really, they're not interested in hearing his story or learning about his life or connecting with him in any way. He is simply a prop for them to use to be taught by Jesus. They just start asking, hey, this, this blind guy. So is, is he a really bad sinner or is his mom a really bad sinner? Like no, no answer Jesus could give would not be offensive to this guy. The disciples don't really care. And you have to realize, this this blind guy has no clue, he has no context for what's taking place around him. He simply hears these these men walking by. He's probably there begging. He's probably in his spot, hanging out. He seems to be known, right, by the neighbors, by the neighborhood. He's just kind of living through his life, and all of a sudden, here he is having these, these fishermen, these uneducated guys, questioning his own lifestyle and the lifestyle of his parents. He's disrespected by the disciples. Next, Jesus, and please, please don't miss the answer that Jesus gave from the perspective of this guy. We hear it, right? Oh, he's, he's blind so that the works of God might be put on display. We know he's about to be healed, don't we? But did this guy know he was about to be healed? No, what Jesus essentially said is your blindness isn't because you're a horrible, wicked sinner. You probably are. 
but it's because it's actually an act of God. God is the one who blinded you. Like, like just, that's not better news. <laughs> oh, it's not your fault. God's just mean, and he made you blind. Again, this guy doesn't realize he's about to be healed. He has, he has no reason to think one more rabbi, which was, was a common sort of profession at the time, he has no reason to believe this rabbi is going to heal him. As you read through the rest of this chapter, you'll find that he doesn't have a clue who Jesus is. Even after he's healed, he does not know Jesus. So all he knows is some, some, some religious leader is telling him that he is, he's blind because God just wants him that way. And then Jesus spits. Now, I, I was, I gotta be real with you. I was real confused about this. I was like, uh, why? And there's all kinds of commentaries. I love, I love this. I love it when commentaries do this, that hyper-spiritualize this. They're like, well, the mouth is the place where speech comes from. And since God created all things by his word, what Jesus was doing was spitting because of words. I'm like, what? He can talk. He could have just spoken if he wanted to do that. So I started digging a little bit. I started looking into this whole idea of spitting and what, what it really mean in the first century and, and, and what, was there any sort of context to this? And I came across an interesting historical little tidbit the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders of the time, they taught that what the disciples were saying, that, that blindness, especially being born blind, was a result of one's personal sin. It was a, it was a sowing and reaping sort of situation. That, that either he, either his parents, which was usually the more likely thing, his parents, they said, sinned in some way, and therefore God punished their son by making him born blind. Or some Pharisees believe that since you can hear in the womb, you could sin in the womb and then be born blind. So that was the teaching of the Pharisees at the time. So they, they heaped judgment and shame upon these people. So their practice, please don't miss this, their practice when they walked by a blind beggar, which you would know a blind beggar because they had a tunic that they were supposed to wear to let everybody know they were blind. Similar today to right to the white cane. If you see somebody walking around with a long white cane, you can make a, a logical assumption. You can't assume their gender, but you can assume that they're blind. Um, did I say that out loud? I did. Mark at sozospokane.org. Um, and, and, and you could assume they're blind. the same way, this, this guy was wearing a tunic that would have made you know he was blind. It was his way of letting people around him know he was blind. And the, and the practice of the Pharisees at the time was as they walked by this man, they would spit at him. Because he, was, he, he deserved, come on, the, the place that he was. He, he did something or his parents did something, but clearly God made him this way and made me be able to see because I'm a good person and he's a bad person. So it was appropriate to them. They taught their followers to spit on blind people. And Jesus chooses in that moment to make the same sound this man probably heard dozens, if not hundreds of times a day. 
No clue what's going on. No, no ability to see, no ability to, to understand by, by any means of ocular perception. He just sees Jesus spit, and then Jesus decides to make a spit-wad mud pie. <laughs> to literally add insult to injury, he, he makes a mud pie out of his own saliva, mixes it up. I haven't done this since I was like eight he mixes up this, this homemade mud pie spitwad stuff, and without explanation or permission, he rubs it in the guy's eyeballs. The Bible's boring. This is literally what's taking place. Like, Jesus doesn't say, hey, buddy, I got, I got a gift for you. No, nothing. He just, like, grabs him and just goes to town rubs it, the Bible says, into the man's eyes, rubs it on his face, and <laughs> then he sends the blind guy on a journey. <laughs> hey, go find a pool called Siloam, means scent. Like, nobody's got water around that this guy could just wash this stuff off his face. He's like, no, I know you can't see. I know you probably don't know your way around very well. You probably know how to get to, from wherever you live to this spot if this spot isn't where you live. But I want you to go on a journey blind having, come on, spitwad mud pie rubbed all over your face. Go on a journey, find a pool called Siloam and wash there. I need you to catch this. Did you hear Jesus say, and then you'll be able to see? No, he just says, go away. Go, go to a place called sent. Go to a place called away from here. Don't be here anymore. Do you, can, can, can you grasp this guy's perspective? Judged by disciples, disrespected by disciples, told that it's God's fault, spit on again, then mud rubbed in your face, and then told to go away. That's, that's the experience this guy had. We all have the experience like, oh, he's going to get healed. But he's just walking around going like, I just got like, like nasty, stinky mud smeared all over my face. And now I got to go find a specific pool. How many conversations does this guy have to have? Like, is this the pool of Siloam? Nope, it's down the road further. Great. Can you help me get there? Nope. Oh, thanks. Nobody who sees him has any context of what's going on. They just see a blind guy with, with, with mud all over his face trying to find a specific pool. They're probably wondering, dude, why don't you just wash that off as fast as you can? How many people offered him? Like, I got a little bit of water here. You want to just wash that stuff off? No, I got I to gotta go to a pool called Siloam, a pool called Scent. And then the amazing part is he, he comes back, the Bible says, totally healed. To the point that it's a debate in his neighborhood if he's even the same dude. And he has to keep telling, like, no, I'm really me. Like, no, I'm not pretending I used to be blind. It's really, really, really me. This is this, this is this guy's experience. What I want us to see is that Jesus here is engaging in what I think is divine provocation. He is provoking this guy. He is giving this dude 
every reason to be offended and just write off Jesus as another rude, hypocritical, hyper-spiritual, super-judgmental uh, religious person. He, 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 he gives him no explanation. He gives him no reasoning. He makes him no promise. But what I want us to see as we walk through this is that hidden, please follow me here, hidden in the moments, come on, that hurt is the means for your healing. And Jesus does not spare him the hurt to get him to the healing. Sometimes the words that we need the most hurt the most. If, 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 if all we're willing to do is find the moments and find the places and find the little, the little, the little, the little encounters that make us feel better, we will miss the very thing that God is trying to get to us that will bring ultimate deliverance to us from the things that have oppressed us. Hidden in the moments that hurt is the means to heal. You may need to hear some things that you don't want to hear so that you can have the healing you need so desperately, so that you can see the things that you were destined to see. But what do you do? What, what do you do when you're offended by what you hear? Because this, this, if anybody, if I, hopefully, hopefully you see, if anybody had a reason to be offended by Jesus and just write him off, it was this dude. And Jesus... <laughs> Jesus makes no attempt, puts in no investment to try to explain himself to this dude. Like, at all. He doesn't, again, he doesn't even tell him, oh, I'm going to heal you. He doesn't say, well, he was born blind so I could heal him right now. No, he, he, he doesn't even make that clear of a statement to this, this blind beggar. He, he purposefully allows this guy an out. And listen, we have the same grace. You will hear things, come on, in the scriptures. You will hear things in the gospel that will purposefully, divinely provoke you. The gospel is not you are a wonderful snowflake made so beautifully that God just can't help but redeem you. The gospel is, despite the fact that we have chosen, come on, to be enemies of God, despite the fact that we have chosen to rebel against him and reject him, both, both by our will and by our, by our default, by our nature, God in his goodness, come on, has stepped into the story to redeem you so that he might be seen as good. But I don't want to be told that. I want to be told that I'm a beautiful butterfly. Yet Jesus divinely provokes this guy, and yet, come on, he heals me, does do good by him. So what do you do? What do I do? What do we do when what we hear offends us? I want to remind us, Luke chapter 8, verse 18, take care how you hear. Take care how you hear. Because when we are offended by God, 
When we feel, come on, let down or, or looked over or, or, or swept aside or wronged or forgotten, we are in danger of the deadly sin of idolatry. When we get offended, when we feel like God has wronged us somehow, when we feel like, I love you, life isn't fair, God isn't fair, we are in danger of the horrible, deadly, wicked sin of idolatry. What do we mean by idolatry? Because you're like, I, don't, I never have carved an idol and put it up in my house. Okay, let me explain. Let me unpack what we mean by idolatry. Idolatry is any action or attitude that makes something that isn't God, God, or makes the one who is God less than God. Track with me? So you make anything into God. You take any good thing and make it a God thing. You take anything and elevate it. You take anything and, and try to make it the ultimate, where you, you, you try to look to that thing for your, for your peace, for your place, for your purpose, where you, you look to that thing to try to find your security, your identity, and felicity, ultimate joy. When you look to those things, you have elevated good things, good things, into God things, it becomes an idol. We've talked a lot about that in the past here, so I'm not going to spend any time on that this week. What I want to talk about is this next one that I think Christians, I love you, are equally as guilty of, and that is taking God and making him less than God, subtracting attributes from God so that it fits our experience or our intellect. I think I even have a slide that says that. When we allow our experience or or, or our experience or, not of, or intellect to alter the power of, or person of God. I don't know why I like typing of instead of or. It's just for all of you grammar Nazis. That's not grammar, that's spelling. I know. G-E-D. So, um, <laughs> oh, uh, when we allow, <laughs> they're trying to help. They're trying to help. Thank you, Loft, trying to make me look better. When we allow our experience or our intellect to alter the power or the person of God. That's what I mean by idolatry. That's the type of idolatry I want to look at today is, is when, we, when we allow these things to shift and to change who God is. Alter his power. Everybody say power. Or person. Everybody say person. Okay, we do this two ways. We make Jesus less than king. We make Jesus less than then King, even Kanye knows that Jesus is king. <laughs> what I mean by this is, is in, our, in our moment of, of weakness, in our moment of, 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 of suffering, in our moment of struggle, when, when we're offended by life's experiences, we say God must not be powerful. He's powerless in the situation. He's, he's weak. He's unable to do right by me. Why, why would I be in this situation if God had the power to get me out of it? No, he must not be powerful enough to do anything about this. He's powerless to stop my suffering or my pain or my loss. He's powerless to heal me. He's powerless to get them not to leave. He's powerless to get them not to come back. He's powerless not to alter my financial situation, my emotional situation, my physical situation, my, my relational situations, whatever it might be. He must be powerless. He must not be capable he must be less than king the chaos must be stronger than our king 
Genesis chapter 1 proves that to be false. In the beginning, when chaos and, and disorder reigned and ruled, in the beginning, come on somebody, God. And that's why I believe Genesis one is echoed in John chapter one, where John connects what happened in Genesis to the person, come on, of Jesus. Genesis proves, John one echoes the truth that God is sovereign. Come on, he, is, he has authority over all. But, but there's another way that we lessen the kingship of Jesus. I think it's more subtle and I think, I love you, I love you, I love you. I think we do it more often. And that is not to say that God can't. And it's not even, we'll get to this, that he won't. But that if he hasn't yet, he somehow owes me an explanation. That God owes me an explanation for why he does what he does. And I'm here to tell you, I love you, I love you. He doesn't owe you anything. And I say that to you out of love because if, if, you're, if you've allowed your relationship to God to degrade to the point of you just screaming and yelling the question of why, listen, you are wasting your time with him. There are better investments of your time with the king than just screaming for an explanation that he may never give you. Often, often, listen to me, often in his goodness, he does explain things to us and he does share what he's doing. But that is not, listen to me, that is not something we are owed. That is an evidence of the goodness and kindness and graciousness of our God. You want to really dive into this? If you, if you want to dig in this, if you disagree with me and you want to dive into this, Job chapter 38, where after Job, Job's nutcase friends make all kinds of crazy statements, of which I've been guilty, I've heard other preachers be guilty, like preaching sermons off of them, like, dude, these guys were nuts. God doesn't like these people. After Job complains and, 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 and stirs up all this stuff, God answers and essentially walks him through all of creation and says, can you do any of this stuff? Then who are you to question me? But I find it even more clearly laid out. I wasn't going to read this, but I'm going to now. Romans chapter 9. I don't have a slide. doesn't matter. Romans chapter 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God's doing whatever he wants to do, then, then I'm not responsible for anything. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God desires to show his wrath and to make known his power? He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known his riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. I know we don't like to hear this. This is what I'm saying. What are you going to do with the things that offend you? Started there. We are not God. 
Why didn't Jesus explain himself to this man? Because he owed this man no explanation. Why doesn't God explain himself? Why doesn't God tell me why this and this and this? He owes you. Listen, I love you, beloved. He owes you no explanation. God, as sovereign creator and king, owes you and me and all of his creation no explanation for the way he chooses to rule and reign over said creation. Be careful in your offense not to make Jesus less than king. He's not powerful enough. He owes me an explanation. The next thing that we do is we make Jesus less than kind. We make Jesus less than kind. Well, man, yeah, he's powerful, and yes, he has authority, and he, he could, but he doesn't want to. He's mean. He's vindictive. He, he, he's, he's, trying to, he's, trying to, he's trying to make me pay for, for what the bad things that I have done. And the person, come on, of Jesus shatters this lie. When the disciples throw this out, Jesus says, you guys have missed the point entirely. You say, well, then why do bad things happen to good people? Listen, his ways are higher than our ways. They are superior. They surpass our ways. We talked about this last week. I, 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 think, I think we need to remember that the, that the reason you and I and all people were created was to glorify and exalt and honor God. And this guy endured 10, 20, 30 maybe years of blindness, and yet 2,000 years later, his story, come on, is still glorifying God. His purpose is fulfilled. How many of you would like your story to still be bringing glory to God 2,000 years from now? Oh, I forgot. Obama's the Antichrist, and so the end is like right around the corner. I forgot. <laughs> is Obama still the Antichrist? I don't know. Forgot. I'm going to be good. Jesus <laughs> must not be made less than king. Sometimes our blindness, please hear me, our blindness can limit our perspective. This guy, come on, had no clue what was going on, right? We, we covered that earlier. No clue. He's, he's, just, he's just hearing people be disrespectful to him and his mom. He's just being told that God made him this way because God's just mean. Rabbis are spitting on him and rubbing mud in his face. By the way, side note, how long do you think it took him to figure out that the mud that was rubbed in his face was made out of the spit? You can think about that on your own time. We're in the same boat often where our perspective is limited. We have a perspective of blindness. We, we don't know everything that's going on. But how many of you think Jesus didn't know what was going on? Like he's like, I'll just figure this out as I go. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And yes, God owes us no explanation. And yes, God is sovereign. And yes, Jesus is king. But listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. He's good. Is anybody gonna argue that Jesus did not do right by this man? I don't think this guy was like, you know what? Um, next time when you heal me, could you not spit and rub mud in my eyes and make me go find a lake? 
I don't think this dude complained at all. Jesus did right, but Jesus is king and Jesus is kind. Jesus is the kind king. Come on, somebody. That's who he is. And when we make him less than that, we are no longer worshiping or following or praying to God. We are, we are engaging in idolatry. We've made a false God and called him God. One of the weirdest, weirdest revelations I had in reading through the Old Testament was in Exodus. If you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but, but in Exodus, we, 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 if you watch Prince of Egypt, this is like the sequel. So after Prince of Egypt happens, sea gets parted, go. They go to the, the, the Mount Sinai, and they have this encounter with God, and, and they're freaked out. So instead of engaging in that encounter, they're like, you, Moses, you go up the hill and die. We'll stay here. Read it. That's what they say. They're like, God's like, don't touch the mountain. They're like, okay, Moses, you go. And because Moses had a prior relationship with God, Moses knew he could go. But God's invitation, don't miss this, was to everyone. Come be with me. Here's what it looks like to be with me. And they're like, not murdering people is too hard. Moses, you go. Moses goes up the mountain, gets lost in the presence of God. The people are stuck down there. They get antsy. They, they get impatient because the Uber driver's not back fast enough. And so they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, hey, make us an idol like we used to have. Make us a carved image so that we have something to worship. We don't, we don't want to engage in, in, a, in a genuine, real relationship with a real God. Just make us something that looks like our culture says God looks like. But here's the part that I missed for like 20 years. They called that calf that they made out of their own melted gold, they called that calf Yahweh. They didn't make up a new name for him. They said, this is God. So they're verbally, they were right. Yahweh delivered us from Egypt. But yet what they pointed to was not Yahweh. How many times have you or I or us prayed to a God that was of our own imagination. We just called him Jesus because he was less than kind and he was less than king because we were offended by either our experience or our intellect. I love you. So that's where I was gonna land, but that felt mean. And I had one more question for this text. So we're going to do this very quickly. What caused the blind guy's obedience? <laughs> Is that, am I the only one that wonders that? Like, hear the story from the perspective of the blind guy, right? Disrespected, made fun of his mom, spit on him, rubbed mud in his face, sent to go find a lake. He maybe did or didn't know where it was. What made him go? What made him go, like, what made him, like, that sounds like a good idea. What made him not just wipe it off immediately? What made him not just grab the closest water he could find and wash off? What made him not do, what tangibly happened? What made him do this? Intellectually, understand this, please. He didn't know who Jesus was. He had no clue the identity of Jesus. 
Emotionally, Jesus had done nothing but offend him. Physically, he couldn't see Jesus. What must it have been like to be blind and stand in the presence of the God of the universe? What was that like? There, 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 was, there was something in the very presence of Jesus that makes impossible possible. And something in that presence caused this man, come on, to respond in obedience. Please don't miss this. Please don't, come on, stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. If you want to know the way to walk in obedience, even when you're offended, the key is not found in an explanation. It's found in a presence. It's found in a person. There was something about Jesus that even though he, he seemed to behave just like all the other rabbis, there was something about him that made this guy willing to get up from where he was to walk, How we have no idea, however long the journey was, with the shame of his tunic telling everybody he was blind, everybody asking the same questions the disciples did. I wonder if this guy's a sinner, if his mom's just, you know, Find a pool and wash. There was something about the person, the presence of Jesus. Because in the presence of Jesus, impossible things become possible things. We need to get this. We serve a God of presence. Come on, church. We serve a God of presence. We say that as charismatic people. But I don't think we, <laughs> I love us, I don't think we really define it, do we? Presence is like when the worship is all, ooh, and the hairs go, ah, and it feels kind of tingly. That may or may not be a byproduct of the presence, but that is not what the presence of God is. The presence of God is the person of God making himself known in a moment. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. We serve, when I say we serve a God of presence, what I mean is we serve a God who is, come on, present. Quick, unpack this. Jesus is present. He's now. Now. Time. Now. We see this in the text. As he passed by, he was there in that moment. He's here in this moment. He is here. He is, he is present He's here. He passed by, right? In the text, he passed by. He was, he was there. Not metaphorically, not like hypothetically, not in some sort of word picture. He's here. But I think the most important thing to me that we get, Jesus is present. We mean he's aware. 
Talked about this last week, not going to go back into it. The word see doesn't just mean that he perceived the guy with his, with his eyes. It means he, was, he, was, he saw exactly, come on, he knew the prescription and he knew his plan to fix this guy's problem. He saw him. He's aware. So when we talk about encountering the presence of God, what we mean is he's now, he's here, and he's aware. I don't want us to just be a church like, yeah, God is present. Let's just leave that undefined. I want us to get this. Because this, I love you when we land here, this doesn't just change the way we worship. This changes the way you live. Because he's not just present when, 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 when the music is just right. He's present all the time. Do you know the promise he's made you as his people? He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And yet in suffering, in pain, we doubt. In suffering, in disappointment, in discouragement, in blindness, we say he must not be king and he must not be kind. He said he's never going to leave you. He's never going to, he's always now. He's always here. He is always aware. We must, come on, we must, must, must be people of his presence. If we're going to fulfill that which we were called to do, we cannot do it apart from him. He designed it that way. He designed it that way. Why? Because he's king and he's kind. The gospel mandate on the people of God is not go away from me and do work for me. It's be with me. We're gonna dive into this in the next coming weeks where Jesus talks about the fact that we must do the work of him who sent me while it's day, while there's light. Come on, we do the work in the light. We, we, we do the work with him. We've gotta remain people of the presence. Yes, it shapes the way we worship. It does. But more importantly, more fundamentally, more foundationally, it changes the way we live. Let's stand to our feet. We believe as a people that it is right and good to respond. When we hear God's word, when we hear the truth of him speaking of who he is, we think it is right and good to respond. Amen? So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna respond. And this morning, I, I get, let me get the mechanics out of the way. We're gonna sing. Got communion, you're welcome to partake. If you're a believer, you're welcome to partake in communion. We got little, what do you call them? The little pre-done cups. That was a miracle. <laughs> I always think of this as like Keurig communion. Anybody else? Is that just me? So we've got these, and listen. We're not a church that thinks that you have to be a member here or agree with us on all the doctrinal statements to be able to take communion. 
you're a believer, if you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, we welcome you to the Keurig table of the Lord together with us. Thank you, Rona. However, if you're not a believer, we just want to tell you that this is something that's designed for Christians to do together. So we're not going to ask you to pretend to be one when you're not. Because what this is, is a reminder, is a declaration of the means by which we are offered restored relationship with Jesus, reconciliation to God, and the reclamation of the purpose for which he created us. The wafer, the bread, representing the broken body of Jesus. The blood representing the shed blood of Jesus, a new covenant made by him and the Father for our benefit. It's a declaration, a reminder of not only the cross, not only the death of Christ, but the burial of Christ. Not only the death and burial of Christ, but come on, the resurrection of Christ. He didn't stay dead. He took your sin to the grave and he, 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 he left your sin in the grave and he came back out alive so that you would know that you can leave your sin in the grave and walk out alive. And not just, this, not just the death, not just the burial, not just the resurrection, but come on, the ascension of Jesus. He rose and he kept rising. Come on. And he is seated. Come on. At the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning as a kind king. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Say, but my experience. Experience doesn't matter. Truth is truth. But I can't figure out. You never will. So as we take communion, come on. It is not just a ritualistic experience. It is a reminder, yes, but it is also a prophetic declaration together as the body of Christ of the triumphant victory of our kind king. We're going to sing. We believe the scriptures are, are, are clear from front to back. But there's something about singing that God just loves. Hebrews tells us that it is the sacrifice that he asks for in the new covenant. The fruit of our lips, come on, giving praise to his name. Something happens prophetically. Something happens as we praise him, as we exalt him. Tell me if you've had this experience. All the distractions go away and his presence becomes real clear. That's, that's what we're looking for in this moment, in this time. So I want to encourage us as we respond, as we, as we lift up our voices, we take communion, as we make use of, of the prayer team that will be back behind the chairs over here that would love to pray for you and stand with you and believe with you for anything you might need. If you're at home, you can send us a prayer request through however you know how, any social media, any email, whatever. But I want us in this moment to press into his presence. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you to consider pressing in. Hear me, please. Maybe in a way you've never done before. Practically speaking, I know this might sound ridiculous. But so is spitting in the mud and rubbing it in somebody's eyes. 
Maybe you're somebody who just prefers to sit here and when the Bible says to let the fruit of your lips give praise to his name, you think that means sit quietly and think happy Jesus thoughts. Maybe open your mouth and sing. I'll never forget, I, I stood next to my, my grampy in, in church often as a young man in, 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 in the summers when we would spend time with them. And we went to church and back then you sing in a hymnal. Anybody remember singing out of a hymnal? Praise be to God. And Grampy would always hold a hymnal, but he would never sing. And I remember I asked Grampy one day, I said, Grampy, why don't, you, why don't you sing? Grammy's up there rocking away on the organ. Why don't you sing? And he looked at me and he said, if you could hear me sing, you would know that that would not bring glory to God. <laughs> and I love my, I respect my Grampy, but listen, he's wrong. We might not be blessed by your voice, but God is. So let's lift up our voice. Let's sing to Jesus. Maybe, maybe for you, yeah, you're a singer, but you, you've never done that crazy charismatic thing. You've never lifted your hands before. I could go through the scriptures for like a month and teach you the power and the, and the, the principles of why we lift our hands. It's not a cultural thing. It's a Bible thing. Come on, somebody. Maybe try lifting your hands. Maybe get on your knees. I'm just telling you, maybe do something you've never done before. And you'll have an encounter you've never had before. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, you'll understand why some of us worship the way we do. I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna respond. Holy Spirit, thank you this morning. Thank you that you are here, that you do remain, you abide, you stay with us, you don't leave us, you don't forsake us. Thank you for leading us to the kind King, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the way you rule. Thank you for the way you reign. We, we repent of our attitudes of, of questioning you. Yes, we want to come to you with our struggles, and yes, we want to wrestle with you, but God, let not that, that, that attitude and that heart ever lead us to a place of limiting or, or bringing down your, your kingship over all. encounter those who are here today in ways unexpected. That you would encounter those who are watching from home, listening online. God, that you would encounter them with your presence. Your presence knows no boundary. It knows no wall. So we ask that it would, it would, it would invade every place. And that your people would know you as king and they would know you as kind. And they would exalt you because of it in Jesus' name. Come on, church, let's respond to the Lord.